Unlike Keith, I don't even have a PowerPoint to edify you with. Um, I have an English accent, uh, but more important, I trust in the power of God who likes to use weak things to accomplish his strong purposes. As you picked up, no doubt, from the video, the book of Ecclesiastes is a strange and disturbing book. The preacher's sermon inside Ecclesiastes is a strange and disturbing sermon. But it starts to make sense if we try and understand it as part of a bigger, a much bigger story. And that story is the ancient human search for wisdom, the quest to try and make sense out of life. The preacher in Ecclesiastes is an actor in the drama of Israel's ancient quest for wisdom. And he shares a role along with the book of Proverbs, along with the book of Job. And indeed, ancient sages and philosophers from Egypt to Greece to Mesopotamia, because the search for wisdom in antiquity, the philosophical quest in antiquity was truly an international enterprise. There's a lot of cross-pollinization between the sages of those ancient countries. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes is part of that story, that search to make sense out of life. But he belongs in the middle of the story. Proverbs represents an optimistic beginning of the search for wisdom. Yeah, I can figure life out. I can make sense of it. I can find answers. Whereas the preacher in Ecclesiastes encounters the frustration, the roadblocks typical of the middle of any story. You could say that the book of Ecclesiastes is the midlife crisis of wisdom. The preacher in Ecclesiastes is seeking a clear and positive answer to the meaning of life. But he runs into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock accidents, tragedies, injustice, death. All these roadblocks frustrate the preacher's search for a clear and positive meaning to life. And all the lesser evils that he observes under the sun, fate, accidents, tragedies, injustice. They can be seen as allegories or microcosms or foreshadowings of the supreme evil, death. That's why, why tragedies like divorce or unemployment often feel strangely like bereavement because these losses are indeed miniature death experiences. The preacher's pessimistic sermon isn't easy for to hear for anyone but especially difficult to hear if you're a young person it's very difficult to hear if you're an American because it's so contrary to the American dream ultimately it's a difficult sermon for anyone to listen to and to face up to Ecclesiastes is a difficult sermon for young people to hear. And looking around the room, that would be most of you. For you 
folk in your teens, your 20s, I'm not sure that you will grasp anything that I try to say today. So I would like to reference the ending of the film American Beauty, the Oscar-winning movie American Beauty, where Kevin Spacey is about to die. He's just been shot and he's lying on the kitchen floor and he's facing death, the moment of death. And he addresses a monologue to us, the viewer, the audience of the film, reflecting on the moments before death. And he says, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, do you? But don't worry. One day, you will. So, to you in your teens and twenties, listening to my sermon today, the chances are that you won't have a clue what I'm talking about. (laughs) Don't worry. One day, you will. Ecclesiastes is a difficult sermon for young people to listen to. And believe it or not, I was young once. In my 20s, I attended a lot of funerals. Um, I was living in England in the 1980s and Christianity was dying out. The church was shrinking to nothing. And so the church mostly consisted of faithful believers of older generations There was me in my 20s, and everyone else in my church was geriatric, literally. Uh, Lovely men and women, faithful believers, godly individuals, aged 60, 70, 80, even 90. And like old people tend to do, they had the unfortunate habit of dying with regularity. So in my 20s, I think I must have attended three or four funerals of those dear godly brothers and sisters um, every year. And I remember my my reaction to to being in the church and and, uh, uh, seeing the coffin and uh, going through the funeral service. Um, I couldn't get out of that building quickly enough. Um, Ironically, words of Ecclesiastes were pounding in my brain. Better a living dog than a dead lion. And I thought, hey, maybe a dog, but at least I'm living. Let me get out of the house of death and back to the land of the living. And I literally pounded the pavement of the streets on my way back to the bus stop to get home. Um, and I was, as I was racing down the pavements, here's what I was thinking. Better a living dog than a dead lion. I've still got 20, 30, 40 years ahead of me. Let me accomplish something. Let me live better. I was like Alexander Hamilton in the musical. I was not throwing away my shot. I was determined to accomplish something by working much harder, being a lot smarter, being a self-starter. Yes, I know that white men cannot rap and I apologise. But like Alexander Hamilton, I would write day and night like I'm running out of time. Write day and night night like I'm running out of time. I actually did become an author. I've actually, in 2014, I published a book of 600 Again, this month I will send to another publisher a manuscript 300 pages long. But, again, in the words of the musical Hamilton, I will never be satisfied. I will never be satisfied. I will not tell you how many people have read my 600-page monograph. 
it's depressingly small. My 300-page monograph, 100 years from now, the paper will have crumbled. It may exist in the digital world on Google Books, but it will be part of the gigantic cosmic digital dustbin. More words from Hamilton, the words of George Washington. As you get older, you realise that you have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story, or even if anyone will bother telling your story at all. The words of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. Just like my books. So, Ecclesiastes is a difficult sermon for young people to hear. It's a difficult sermon for Americans to hear. There are parts of Europe where pessimistic philosophy is de rigueur, as the French say. Um, And yeah, it would get a hearing over there. It is fundamentally un-American or anti-American, you might say. Um, This came home to me when I uh, had the misfortune of of attending an awards ceremony at my eight-year-old's elementary school um, in Richardson uh, last month. Um, And uh, they they brought in a motivational speaker who was a young man, a high school senior at a Richardson high school, who had been at that very elementary school. And he, they brought him in as a motivational speaker. And he was a high school senior and he was off to the Marine, joined the Marine Corps. And his message, which he repeated for half an hour ad nauseum, which is Latin for makes you want to throw up, was you can be anything you want to be. You can be anything you aspire to. Don't let anybody ever tell you you can't. You can. Yes, you can. You can be anything you want to be. You can become whatever you want to be. And after half an hour of that, I tell you, I want you to stand up and say reverently, in the name of Jesus Christ, shut up. In fact, I actually want you to say something worse than shut up, something saltier. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit restrained me. In the words of Ecclesiastes, you cannot necessarily be anything you want to be. The race is not won by the swift. The battle is not always won by the strong. The swift athlete can be accidentally tripped up. The strongest warrior can be taken out by a random bow and arrow shot. So this book, Ecclesiastes, it's it's not a fun read. It's hard for young people to read. It's hard, I think, especially for Americans to read. But ultimately, I think it's hard for humans in general to read. And obviously, I'm neither a young person nor an American, and it's still a hard book for me. It's not the favourite book that I turn to in the Bible when I'm seeking consolation and hope. It's difficult for anyone to hear. Um, A few years ago, there was a famous book written by an author called Ernest Becker, And he called it the denial of death. The denial of death. And what he meant by that is that, here's his thesis, that all the great art in the world, all the great culture, all the great civilization, all the great architecture is humanity's attempts to outlive death, to produce something that will 
have immortality that will endure beyond the grave. We see that quest, that ambition in the King Solomon figure described in Ecclesiastes 2. Um, The narrative of King Solomon is retold. He built palaces, architecture. He planted gardens, parks, vineyards and fruit trees, irrigated by pools of water. Now, think about it. This guy, Solomon, he lived in the Middle East. What's the Middle East? You know, look on CNN. Desert. With occasional patches of greenery. And so, in that context, pools of water, abundant water, gardens, parks, vineyards, fruit trees. That represents nothing less than the attempt to restore Eden, restore paradise. Because if you live in the desert, your idea of paradise is lush greenery, abundance of water, trees, parks, vineyards, and fruit trees. And he accomplished all of that. He virtually restored Eden, restored paradise. But then he sat back and looked at the works of his hands and concluded, I must leave everything to others. Someone else will take over the park that I built. And will my successor be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I've produced. They may squander it. How meaningless, he concludes. This uh, frustrated quest for immortality that King Solomon lived out in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's echoed in a famous poem written 200 years ago by Percy Shelley called Ozymandias. I'd like to read it for you. The the, Spoiler alert. The the plot goes something like this. A guy... um, Travelling in a desert finds the remains, the broken remains of a humongous statue of an ancient king. Listen to these words. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip, and sneer of cold command, tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on those lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. No thing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Let's explore the irony of that poem for a moment. Ozymandias, king of kings, he didn't build a statue to himself in the middle of the desert. He built it in the middle of a thriving metropolis. 
Imagine like a mile-long street from somewhere like ancient Greece or ancient Rome, with, with, with colonnaded with high um, carved columns, pillars of marble. And as you walk up that mile-long street uh, with, with majestic columns on either side, at the end, the focal point would have been something like a magnificent palace at the centre of a thriving metropolis. And in front of the palace, the enormous, intimidating statue of Ozymandias with these words inscribed, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And imagine if you were a visitor to that metropolis and you had to walk up that mile-long street and at the end, the enormous palace was looming and in front of the palace, a statue so tall you had to crane your neck up to see the head and on the words of the pedestal you read, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And what was the message? It was to look around at this city that Ozymandias created and say, I can't accomplish that. I don't have game. I'm nothing. But what is the message now, centuries later? Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. What do we look on? We look on a shattered statue in a desert and the metropolis that he built has vanished. It's crumbled to sand. The poem is saying that the sands of time will erode our greatest accomplishments. My two books will be consigned to the cosmic digital trash can. A former pastor of mine uh, conducted an experiment once during a sermon to prove the point and uh, he, he took an impromptu survey and I, I don't want you to, to have to say anything. All I'm asking for is a show of hands. Okay, you all have parents. You all have grandparents. Logically, you all had great grandparents. Can any of you remember, do any of you know a single fact about your great grandfather or great-grandmother, where they were born, what job they did, how many children they had. Please raise your hand if you know a single fact. Okay. So let's push it back a couple more generations. Your great-grandparents had great-grandparents. So your great-great-great-grandparents. Anybody know a single fact about your great, great, great grandparents. I rest my case. <laughs> if our Bible only contained the book of Ecclesiastes, I could end my sermon here on a note of realistic pessimism. You're going to die. Your life will be forgotten. Get used to it. However, the preacher is not the end of the story. He wrote his pessimistic sermon in the middle of the story, in the middle of humanity's quest for wisdom. As the preacher observed life under the sun, the fate, the accidents, the tragedies, the injustices, death, he wrote from a pre-resurrection perspective. It was quoted in the video. Chapter 3 says... People and animals share the same fate. Both must die. 
both go to the same place. They came from dust and they returned to dust. And who can prove that the spirit of humans goes up and the spirit of animals goes down into the earth? He's writing from a pre-resurrection perspective. He has a viewpoint BC before Christ, not AD, Anno Domini, year of our Lord. And it might be easy to dismiss him and say, yeah, he's just an isolated skeptic, a strange bird in the, in, in the whole of the Old Testament. But he actually shares a conservative reading of the Old Testament. Yes, there are books in the Old Testament few and far between, where there's a glimmer of resurrection hope. But these come in the later books, like Daniel chapter 12. It's very hard to find clear resurrection hope in the foundational books of Israel's religion, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's why Jesus was challenged by the Sadducees in the Gospels. Hey, you believe in the resurrection? Prove it from the books of Moses. And the fact that Jesus could come up with any evidence at all was testimony to the difficulty of the feet. If it was easy to find resurrection hope in the five books of Moses, Jesus would not have been doing anything special. He would not have amazed anybody with his wisdom. So Ecclesiastes stands in the central tradition of the Old Testament religion. It views life from the perspective before Christ, from a pre-resurrection perspective. Yeah, there may be glimmers of resurrection hope, but there isn't the solid basis and evidence for it that we have living Anno Domini, year of our Lord. And without resurrection, there really is no answer to the pessimistic sermon of Ecclesiastes, a sermon squarely and solidly based on the undeniable reality of death. So much so that the commentators Kyle and Delich said that in the book of Ecclesiastes, the old covenant, Israel's religion, digs its own grave. But in the new covenant, Jesus is the end of the story, the answer to the futile wisdom quest of Ecclesiastes. Have you ever considered how many times the New Testament depicts Jesus in wisdom language? It's all over the place. Just give me two two examples. Colossians chapter 2, using the language of Proverbs, says that in Christ all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. In Matthew 12, Jesus claims to be greater than Solomon. Greater than Solomon, the author of Proverbs. Jesus is greater than Solomon because he provides the answer to the riddle of death posed by Ecclesiastes, the preacher. According to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1, through the epiphany of our saviour Jesus Christ, God has abolished death and manifested life and immortality through the gospel, through the good news. The resurrection of Jesus, particularly the glorification of Jesus, because people, one of the people in the Old Testament came back from the dead, but then they died again. Jesus rose immortal and glorified, never to die again. And the glorification of Jesus in his resurrection has intruded the end of God's story into the middle of God's story. And that revelation of the end of the story makes all the difference as we face the continuing reality observed by the preacher. What Ecclesiastes observed hasn't gone away 
fate, accidents, tragedies, injustice, death. But knowing the resurrection of Jesus enables us to face all of those things with hope. When I was in my 20s, like I said, I used to literally run out away from funerals, despite the wise counsel of the preacher, Ecclesiastes 7. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies and the living should take this to heart. Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. But I didn't want to hear that. I ran away so I could accomplish something great, some immortality, like Alexander Hamon. I was not throwing away my shot. And so I worked to produce my first book and then my second book. That was my plan A. That was my artefact that was going to outlive me. But as I've aged, as the hairs have turned grey and white... My plan A, the immortal accomplishment, has run into all the roadblocks observed by the preacher. I've become aware how few, how pitifully few people will ever read my books. So contrary to the high school motivational speaker, I have learned that I could not become anything I wanted to be. My plan A is running out of gas. So I've been forced to turn to a plan B, a plan opened up by the resurrection of Jesus. A plan laid out for us in 2 Peter chapter 1, which I would like to read for you. Grace to you and peace be multiplied in knowing God and our Lord Jesus. Just as his divine power, his resurrection power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through knowing the one who called us to his own glory and virtue. Through these channels, great and precious promises have been given to us so that through them we might become participants in the divine nature, participants in the divine nature, and escape the corruption that is in the world through desire. For this very reason, make every effort to produce by means of your faith, virtue, and by means of virtue, wisdom, by means of wisdom, self-control, by means of self-control, patience, by means of patience, godliness, by means of godliness, love for those inside the church and for those outside the church. For if you have these qualities in abundance, they prevent you from being unproductive or fruitless in knowing our Lord Jesus Christ. But the person who lacks these qualities is myopically blind, having forgotten the cleansing of their former sins. Therefore, instead, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. If you do this, you'll never stumble. And in this way, there will be provided for you a rich entryway into the eternal, immortal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. His resurrection power gives us the hope of immortality, participating in the divine nature, sharing the divine qualities of wisdom, self-control, patience, love. And whatever accidents you encounter whatever negative turns of fate you experience, whatever injustice you experience, 
The resurrection of Jesus, working that character transformation in you, producing faith, virtue, godliness, wisdom, patience, self-control, love. That is producing immortal character traits that even death will not extinguish. I spoke of that as a plan B. And reluctantly, in my 50s, I'm starting just now to embrace that plan B of praying that the resurrection of Jesus will produce the God-like character traits of faithfulness, patience, wisdom, virtue, and love. Something that will truly outlast death, outlive the grave. I've come to that plan B because like the preaching Ecclesiastes, I've run into the roadblocks of plan A, the great accomplishment. I've called it plan B. But perhaps for me and for you, if we take Ecclesiastes the preacher seriously, we would be wise to make Second Peter chapter 1 our plan A. May the Holy Spirit inscribe the resurrection of Jesus and the words of Second Peter onto our hearts. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Smith. That was uh, edifying and helpful. We all need a reality check on, on life, and we need God's perspective. You know, we tend to lean on our own understanding And we tend to think we know better. We tend to be wise in our own eyes, right? We tend to create our own plans, and then when they don't work out, we tend to point the finger at God, as Proverbs says. It's our desire here at City Church to live for something greater than ourselves. Uh, as, As we see here, our vision is to know Jesus, love people, and impact the world. And I think this second Peter, this aligns with this second Peter. This, this relationship with God, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. And what, what, what's going to last is love. First Corinthians. Love is going to last forever. And people are going to last forever. And so there are, some, there are some basic things that we need to get back to as, as Christians and, and focus in on and not let all the distractions of this world draw us away from being about what matters most. As as it says at the very end of Ecclesiastes, fear God, keep his commandments. Like serve him, worship him, live for him, walk with him and obey him. Do what's right before him. And so this morning uh, I just I want to open up the altar for prayer if if you feel like the message of Ecclesiastes that you have been running after vanity. You've been chasing the wind. You've been trying to grab smoke. And you've been wasting your, your time, your life, your resources. And you want to align your life with God's plan A for you. Uh, you want the second Peter uh, chapter 1 to be plan A. We want to pray with you. We want to pray for you. If, if that's a desire for God to help you in that, we'll be up here to pray for anybody who would like prayer this morning. Mm-hmm.